Hi, I'm Alex Mozed. You're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant struggle between big tech monopolies and the large traditional enterprises. And just trying to figure out where all this stuff is going to end up settling up. So, to that extent, uh, on the side of big tech monopolies, Zuckerberg uh, is in a not so pretty place today. Oh, Zucky. And basically, joined by Nick Johnson, co author with me on the book. Basically, what seems to have happened is one of Facebook's employees, you know, they do these kind of weekly town halls. And so they were asking Zuckerberg about uh, the upcoming elections in the United States. And and uh, so <laughs> someone was recording Zuckerberg. And so we've got those recordings and we're going to play them for you right now. Like Elizabeth Warren, who thinks that the right answer is to break up the companies. Um, you know, I mean, if she gets elected president, then I would, I would bet that we will have a legal challenge, and I would bet that we will win the legal challenge. So it's, it's so it's, um, so basically, it's, uh, it, and um, so I, I, does that still suck for us? Yeah, I mean, I don't have to, you know, have a major lawsuit against our own government. I mean, that's not like the position that you want to be in when you're, you know. I mean, it's like we. We care about our country and like want to work with our government to do good things. And um, but but look, at the end of the day, if someone's going to try to threaten something that existential, you go to the mat and you fight. Okay, so there's two more. You you can kind of picture Zuckerberg doing that, right? With that stutter, he's probably stuttering stuttering for about 15 seconds um, in a 40 second clip. Uh, so here's the next one. It's just that breaking up these companies, whether it's Facebook or Google or Amazon. Um, is not actually going to solve the issues. And, you know, it doesn't make election interference uh, less likely. It makes it more likely because now the companies can't coordinate and work together. All right, last one. That's why Twitter can't do as good of a job as we can. I mean, they face qualitatively the same types of issues, but they're, you know, I mean, they, they, they can't put in the investment. Our, our investment on safety is bigger than the whole revenue of their company. They <laughs> literally cannot do it. So the interesting thing with all of this is Generally, I would agree with Mark. Um, I don't think Elizabeth Warren is really understanding the, the, well, how to solve the problem that she's identifying, right? And that if you break up Facebook and if you break up these big tech monopolies, is that actually going to solve the problem that she has around privacy, namely being, you know, the predominant issue she's identified We've spoken about how you really need to focus on the producer um, and the suppliers or content creators on a Facebook or on a Google or the sellers on an Amazon. And those people are in jeopardy. But still, in either scenario, breaking up these companies doesn't actually solve the problem. I would probably have different examples to support that thesis than what Zuckerberg is talking about. I mean, maybe some of it I would agree with here in terms of in terms of what he's saying, just the scale of what they're due, and then you know a subtle knock here on Twitter. Uh, but what do you make of this, Nick? I mean, it's not not a good look to be uh, caught recording on a secret meeting. I think that's part of the scandal is just that oh Zuckerberg got caught. Right, on a we got his audio recording. Right, which is unusual. Right, uh, I imagine the the folks at the Facebook executive team are very unhappy about this, regardless of what's said, because it doesn't look good for them. Uh, I think in terms of what he said, uh, I mean, I think he's probably right in that if uh, Warren is elected and this uh, antitrust stuff moves forward, Facebook might have to deal with some legal ramifications. Uh, I don't think he wanted to be caught on, on tape saying that. 
given that this is a potential outcome and that that could be used against him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's not a, it, it's not a good look for him to be, especially kind of naming Warren and these kinds of things. But um, it's interesting. I mean, when you have these such these political environments in many companies these days, um, certainly the large tech monopolies, certainly Silicon Valley skews heavily to the left side of the political spectrum. The interesting thing with this is, you know, if if this kind of information is being leaked, clearly whoever was recording this, I would imagine, I don't know, didn't necessarily like what Zuckerberg had to say. You're not going to go and leak the founder and CEO right. of your company if you're trying to support him and don't want to make the company get into hot water. Um, not necessarily the, the biggest team player move to do. Um, but, uh, you know, what's interesting is just, again, when we speak to the power that mid-level management has in these large tech monopolies, um, to make decisions about, do I, do I, um, kick this, this, this producer off the platform? Do I penalize this person? Do I shadow ban their content? There there aren't any real guardrails other than the ones they've implemented themselves when they felt they've had to, but but right. The self-policing as we've seen in many other industries doesn't usually work very well, especially in a highly emotional environment when it comes to politics, right? People just get very emotional. And I think it doesn't matter what side of the coin you're on when emotional decisions are made. And when you have thousands of people making decisions that could affect the livelihood of content creators in Facebook's example, this is where you want an outside, separate, independent arbiter who can take on cases that might, there might be a gray line or there might be differing opinions here. And right now there's only Facebook who can make that call and possibly only, you know, that one manager is the decision maker and you can never talk to the manager on the phone. It's all just through email if the manager decides to talk to you. And that just can't, how these kind of um, either, you know, regulatory decisions that Facebook is taking on creators, that's how it all works. It's effectively a shadow government on content with a kind of Kafka-esque bureaucracy behind it that no one really understands and there's no transparency around how it works. And the application of those rules is typically very inconsistent. Yep. Uh, I mean, a, lo- a lot of the folks that are doing this are basically actually implementing Facebook's you know, moderation and content moderation policies tend to be like relatively low paid. Yep. Uh, low you know, paid. Contracted out. And contracted content out. Farms, yeah, to like uh, Infosys. Do this, right, <laughs> to do this as a business mm-hmm. and you know, they don't particularly aren't necessarily particularly focused on the quality of Facebook's network. It's here's my guidelines. And if you fall in this box, this is how you get treated. Yep. Whether or not that, you know, in reality makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, we'll see where the rest of this stuff nets out. But uh, I don't know, maybe maybe now the unfortunate thing is maybe Zuckerberg is now a little less forthcoming or does less of these kinds of internal um, Q&A sessions, which is unfortunate. So. Um, moving on to Amazon, we spoke about Amazon go, um, in, uh, the first half of August. And I have a couple clips here that I'm going to play of what we discussed back then. And basically, um, you could say we kind of have a magic ball here on winner take all, and you're going to see for yourself. What has been reported is that Amazon is now approaching certain retailers to license this technology. This is the last piece of data that Amazon doesn't have access to, but 
if I don't have a competitive solution, I'm going to be in big trouble. Let's talk about Amazon Go. Amazon Go has been out for a few years now. Cashierless. You know, I have cameras in, in the ceiling. They watch you. You pick something off the shelf. Boom. It knows that you just picked this thing off the shelf. Amazon Go, I think, is a groundbreaking transformational technology for the retail industry as we know it. A couple of reasons why. Lossage especially in food and grocery in these industries. I think most grocery stores expect like a 3% lossage rate, which is basically theft and stuff goes bad, right? I take right. some produce off the shelf. I don't put it back into a refrigerated area in the store, but I don't buy it. That food goes bad. I got to throw it out. Um, so there's all these kinds of, you know, that was really just kind of a logistics and operational thing. There's obviously some produce that just doesn't get bought and then that goes bad. That's kind of the the overview about Amazon Go. There's two other clips here. There's there's other cost benefits um, that we talk about with lossage later on in that video, but I'm going to skip past that. There's a couple other clips here I'm going to show. Um to separately highlight some points. So now they're approaching some retailers off the record and saying, hey, would you want to license this technology? Um, and the retailers are saying, oh my God, I don't know what to do because this is the last piece of data that Amazon doesn't have access to. What am I selling in my store? But if I don't have a competitive solution, I'm going to be in big trouble because eventually consumers are going to want this experience. Right. Consumers are going to want the experience, A, and B, look at what it does to the economics of my store. Also, if you sell clothes, lots of losses through theft for clothes. Big expense uh, for clothing retailers. So um, pretty big deal. There's reports that Microsoft um, is developing an Amazon Go competitor. That was from last year. PayPal, I think, is developing an Amazon Go competitor. Why aren't Visa, MasterCard, and Amex developing an Amazon Go competitor. You know, when I think about, and they're also platform companies. Um, to me, those are the players that should really be in the space. Those are the players that should, A, see this as a threat, and B, have the relationships with the retailers and really have an ecosystem approach where they integrate with a lot of different vendors. I, I would say I'd be surprised if they haven't thought about it. I, I would guess that they have. I think that you know, they might not be ready to take it public the way Amazon Go has. So Amazon certainly has an advantage. Today, or end of day yesterday, it was announced that Amazon is in talks to bring its cashierless Go technology to airports and movie theaters. Oh, boy. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And basically, the terms of this are saying that they want a, a cut of the revenue, basically. They want to rev share um, with these uh, with these retailers. Right, so they would take a percentage of the transaction, not unlike the big payments platforms do today. Uh, I imagine the goal for Amazon with this technology would be, would be eventually to replace those. Uh, I think initially you would probably have them work. So you know, you, your Amex card or your uh, MasterCard would go into the app or whatever you use to check into the Amazon Go technology store. That's probably going to go away eventually, right? If Amazon owns your online shopping, which they own about half of, if you're the average American today, and then they start to get into all these retail locations, they don't need a lot of those companies anymore. They can just do it themselves. They have all the customers. So I'm very worried if I'm a, a big payments company. Oh, if you're a big payments company, if you're a retailer, where are where are, as we said in that video, where are the Visa, MasterCard, Amex? Where are, you know, the PayPals? Um, we've mentioned other companies, right? Microsoft. And other, 
I mean, it is just astounding to me that Amazon is able to get this far along. They have 16 stores that have already been operating with the Go technology. Separate from this announcement, they're also planning to roll out cashierless grocery stores, separate from Whole Foods, separately branded cashierless grocery stores, which is exactly what we were talking about August 13th in that previous clip that I was just showing. There was an announcement, I think, today where they're moving ahead on a lease with a big store in Los Angeles, and Mm -hmm. the, the momentum is getting on those grocery stores, too. I think the... You know, the big thing here is while some of these payments uh, competitors, they have pilots and this kind of stuff so that they've, they've announced and they're working on, but no one really has an active product in the market that's competitive with Amazon Go. Uh, and Amazon has a huge head start on this. And if they get into the market and start operating in these stores in the next you know, 12 months, it's going to be hard to catch up. It's going to be hard to catch up. And these retailers need a partner badly. Um, and no one's stepping up to the plate. I mean, it. it just imagine the world where you have retailers partnering with Amazon, giving them all of their technology to process their inventory and their payments. They don't want to do this, folks. This is a great example of the incumbents failing to innovate, knowing that this was happening. The stores have been out there. I mean, look, to be honest with you, August 13th video, we said we have reports that Amazon is... You know, having these conversations, we didn't have reports. It was just logic. We knew that Amazon has this technology. They don't want to go to other retailers. Let's put two and two together here. And I've been talking about this for, we've been talking about this for many, many, many months, that they've been going out there and do this. This is the first report, this article today on September 30th. Publicly. This is the first public report. We had heard some murmurings off the record. But there was no actual report back August 13th. It was really us kind of hearing things through the grapevine and putting things together that Amazon doesn't want to own every single piece of inventory. It's not the platform way. This is the platform way. I don't think they want to be forever 21. (laughs) Right. Or get into the fashion retail space and own a bunch of stores and have retail footprint across the U.S. They want the data and they want the payments and transaction. And they're going to get it with mm-hmm. Amazon Go, and this is the approach that makes yep. so much sense. It's, it's great. I mean, good for them. We've spoken a lot about TikTok. Probably some of you are TikTok users. TikTok's owner is ByteDance. It's the, lar- the largest private company in the world, or at least largest private tech company in the world. Not, pro- not private, private tech company. Um, I'm sure uh, like Aramco, the Saudi oil company, is bigger. They had over $7 billion in revenue. Um. Right, and this is uh, this is a a content app. So that's not GMV. They're not conflating product GMV purchases. This is advertising revenue, um, which is which is an astounding number um, for the first half of the year. So this is two quarters, uh, but it's still a very meaningful size of money um, coming from not just TikTok, but ByteDance owns you know other apps in China as well. And um, yeah, this is a this is a pretty major deal. What do you make of this, Nick? We've seen content platforms like a Twitter or a Snapchat go public with much less revenue than this. Mm-hmm. So if I'm uh, ByteDance, I you know if I'm making ten plus billion dollars a year already in revenue, mm-hmm. uh, obviously that's not profit, and they may not yet be profitable. I've clearly proven that there's a business model here, and I can make money, uh, and I can continue to scale Look at this. this. All of 2018. 
They generated seven point two billion dollars in revenue. Right, so they've First effectively half doubled. of twenty nineteen. Right. They're at seven billion. I mean, this is uh, pretty astounding. They um, they estimate that they're going to have probably around eight or nine billion dollars in the second half of twenty nineteen. So I don't know. You're at fifteen, sixteen billion dollars in revenue. You're actually more than doubling a seven billion dollar top line revenue number from 2018 going into 2019. Right. I mean, this would is already be one of the biggest content platform businesses in the world, up there with a uh, you know YouTube, Google, uh, and a Facebook. And uh, I think it, it's if I'm and they also have a big presence in the West with TikTok. So if I'm not just the big companies like a WeChat in China and a Tencent, but if I'm you know, Facebook and Google, I'm worried, particularly because they TikTok users are young users, the very kind of folks that uh, those competing content platforms might be struggling. I know we know in Facebook's case, struggling to attract. Uh, I'm worried about my future if this company is growing so quickly and making money on an audience that I don't have. Mm-hmm. And and now with the, and now they're saying it so. So, so ByteDance has entered platform conglomerate status. Right. They have they have TikTok, which is primarily outside of China, and then they have kind of a somewhat similar app in China. Right. Both content models, you know. So I would say it's not necessarily kind of the the overlapping platform conglomerate status that we talk about, but this is right. So Lark is an example, which is a kind of work collaboration platform they've got a big uh news platform in china as well news platform they're getting into linear music streaming apps so you can see this business now cascading other platform types it's not just con it's not just other content platforms like tiktok it's other it's like this collaboration platform model other platforms uh platform types that they're stacking on top of each other so look it's platform conglomerate um if they're they're what they're like a hundred hundred thirty x revenue growth on a seven billion dollar baseline revenue, um, this company is is blowing up. So it's going to be fun to watch watch them and see if they do a direct listing and and where they go, uh, you know where they um, where they list the company. So the last thing here is Twitter has basically freaked out today. Um because tech twitter tech twitter and it's honestly a waste of time it's honestly a waste of time so many people they spend so much time writing these articles and tweets what are they doing they're saving face why are they saving face because the bubble popped we work and um i think we're going to see then some other companies here have underperformed after going public or trying to go public so um endeavor which uh is uh ari emmanuel's company kind of like a like the largest talent um agency and then now they own ufc fighting rights and it's like a media kind of talent agency thing had a tech spin on it they postponed their ipo peloton went public not not kind of what did they say? They had platform in their S1 like 98 times. We were looking at that. Um, they're they're down, I don't know, 5 or 10% after IPOing this week. Um, so basically, Silicon Valley has some pie on their face. And they're kind of scratching their heads and being like, man, we got to get out in front of this. Like, oh, WeWork branded itself as a tech company. And WeWork has lost 
80 plus percent of its value in a matter of a few weeks. Well, it didn't just brand itself as a tech company. We put money behind it, we being Silicon Valley, as a tech company at massive scale. So let's look at who those who 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 the who the we is in the in the we work uh, or the we <laughs> company. And those investors are you can see here, right? Um, if you SoftBank, we spoke about. We don't think it was a good deal. Now here's the thing that I'm not privy to. SoftBank has provisions and some get out of jail free cards. I'm sure in the investment and the money that they put in. I don't know if those clawbacks. And the kind of anti-dilution provisions are basically cramming down the other investors in the event of, you know, the the valuation taking a serious haircut. I don't know how much protection. I don't think it's going to be able to give them enough protection to shield against an 80 plus percent drop in valuation. So I feel like SoftBank's not very happy. China Oceanwide's not very happy. Owning Capital, Greenland, Hong Kong, Holdings Limited. Legend Holdings, Honey Capital again, Shanghai Jinjiang International Hotels, T. Rowe Price, Bladebrook Capital Partners, Fidelity, J.P. Morgan Chase. I'd put all of them at risk of being underwater or, yeah. or maybe worst case scenario, you know, they'll say they're like break even or something. They can get their money out at, at some unknown point in the future. All of those investors, I would say at risk. Now, before that, it's a series. It's Series D. It's a long, long time ago. You can see Harvard, T. Rowe, Benchmark, J.P. Morgan. Well, so some of those later investors were earlier investors, and so then I think net net they're probably still up on their investments. Benchmark is fine; they're in the money, um, but still, Benchmark is known to be a hallowed VC that only really invests in legitimate. Very platformy type companies like the large majority of, of Benchmark's portfolio or the way they've made a predominant amount of their money is from platform businesses that have blown up. And they're very good at this. Uh, Bill Gurley being probably one of the most notable um, investors there who is a billionaire off of making really good network effect driven investments. Now, um, I don't. It wasn't. It wasn't Bill Gurley from Benchmark. It was Bruce Dunleavy from from Benchmark, who who was the the partner on their side overseeing this investment. But anyway, the fact that the name is attached to this thing that's blown up and everyone's ganging up on called We Company um, has now elicited all of this kind of. I don't know these epiphanies about what what does it mean to actually be a tech company and let's kind of let's go define this and all this kind of stuff. So I'm going to share a couple tweets um, that I thought were interesting. So this is from Benedict Evans. Um, I like Benedict a lot. Um, he's from Andreessen. So he goes: Tech companies are not valued differently. Companies with high growth and high and defensible margins get valued differently. These are not necessarily the same thing, but sometimes people take one for the other. I agree with this. And and I think I actually wish we'd kind of in, integrated this into the summer of the conversation we had about tech company and Uber, you know, quote unquote, not being a tech company, which is false. Um, and and we talk about this a lot in the book, which is that it's really the confluence of people, data and technology and the three things of these coming together as to why the platform business model is so dominant today. However, the platform business model has existed for two plus thousand years. You don't need technology to be a platform. You, if you think about a bazaar in ancient Rome connecting buyers and sellers, 
So the business model can still exist. Even some of the older platform stocks that are in Plat, like Copart. You know, if you look at Copart, Copart, it, yeah, kind of does stuff with technology. They're basically like an auction house for trucks and heavy equipment. And a lot of that has been done very physically. If you just think about how heavy used trucks and heavy equipment is, you're not necessarily going to be buying something in California, shipping it from New York. Kind of takes the whole reason out of it, right? So it's actually been very local. The business has existed without really technology being the key underpinning mechanism for many decades. Um, it's one of the older companies uh, in, in the ETF. Um, I think the key thing here when we talk about if you are a tech company or not, is basically saying, what is your business model, A, which is where when we talk about WeWork, or when we talk about Netflix, linear businesses, as we were talking about WeWork, it's really a real estate company. When we talk about um, Netflix, it's really a movie studio. Right. And is technology a factor? Okay, that can be taken into, into account in terms of your distribution mechanism and these kinds of things. But... Um, it's very clear that WeWork is nowhere near the tech company that they were touting themselves to be. That's where we started out with our video back in August, kind of laying waste to the S1. Yeah, I think we, WeWork was a real estate company through and through. All the important questions for WeWork have pretty much always been real estate questions. They had a lot of these other bets and things that they were playing with, but none of them ever were particularly material. Uh, so if, if I were looking at WeWork business and we've been saying this for, I don't know, at least a couple of years, it didn't look like a tech company. If it's one of those things where if you, if you have a asset and you sell an asset worth a dollar for 85 cents, you can get a lot of revenue. Uh, and that's really what it seems like WeWork has been engaging in a lot of, uh, to say nothing of some of their governance issues, which is why, uh, you know, as we come back to a, a scenario where all of a sudden investors care about unit economics again and business models uh, rather than just growth, uh, which is really all that we work had going for it. And uh, the, the tune starts to change a little bit. Yep. And so here's Bill Gurley's tweet. He wrote he, he, he uh, quotes an article here that, that he wrote from 2011, which basically talks about how defensible, you know, what are your unit economics? Do you have network effects, growth, all of these variables about can you get that 10x revenue multiple? It's just funny to me. It's ironic to me, right? That a lot of the people who enabled these companies who call themselves tech companies, incorrectly so, um, are now the ones on Twitter Explaining to everyone why you shouldn't be focused if they're te the tech companies should be focused on the business model and yada, yada, yada. And oh, yeah, yeah, you know, here are all the things to look for if you actually, these are the people that created the exact scenario that we're in because you look at the multiples that WeWork was getting, but then these are the people that are saying, here are the things you want to look for to see if it deserves the multiples. It doesn't go together, right? They're, they're saying one thing and doing another. So the hypocrisy to me, is kind of funny. Yeah, I think definitely that what you're seeing here is a little revisionist history. Uh, and we care about these things until we don't. Right. And the, what until you the deal is just so sexy and I got to get so in. So Fred it. Wilson uh, from Union Square Ventures had an interesting. That was what Bill Gurley, I'm, I'm, I'm displaying was that responding here. to. Right. His take was basically that part of what you see is the different dynamic between 
public investing, public markets versus private markets. And a lot of what's happened in private markets is really being driven by uh, irrational FOMO, basically fear of missing out on deals. Um, you know, the next big thing, you don't want to miss the next Airbnb, whatever. So that the, uh, you have a little bit of a rational uh, investing happening that really aren't tied to unit economics, is really tied to opportunity. And a lot of the leverage stays with the company raising money and the founder. Uh, whereas in public markets, uh, the situation reverses a little bit and investors have a lot more leverage and transparency. And it tends to be a little bit more rational because it's not a handful of people doing the investing. It's a much more uh, dispersed crowdsource kind of wisdom is looking at these companies and saying, does this make sense or not? Exactly. I think Fred Wilson hit it on the head. Um, and I'm not necessarily saying that a Union Square, which is what Fred started and runs, a benchmark or an Andreessen, those are the three folks, Benedict from Andreessen, Bill from Benchmark, are, th are the hypocrites that I'm speaking to. And maybe, essentially, maybe what Bill and Fred and, the, and Benedict and these guys are kind of, are they throwing subtle shade at these Asian mega investors that came in and blew up WeWork's valuation? I think there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with some of the successful U.S.-based VCs with institutional money and soft bank type money and you know, sovereign wealth funds that have come in that are potentially a little bit less sophisticated uh, than some of the VC investors, at least in terms of their uh, historical record and returns with these kinds of investments that basically blew up valuations. A lot of VCs have been complaining that valuations are sky high as basically mm -hmm. all this money uh, in a very low interest rate environment is now chasing returns in VC because it isn't getting it elsewhere. The, the market dynamic has definitely changed and that's a part of it. And there might be some, uh, some pretty solid subtweeting going on here. Yeah, I've, it, the Series F, they raised $690 million. This was in November of 2016. <laughs> the G was um, $4.4 billion. I, I think, yeah, I think they're, I mean, this is, uh, this is basically Japan and China. I think these US VCs, who, by the way, have operations in China, are definitely throwing shade at these folks. I don't know how those folks read Bill Gurley and Fred Wilson's and Benedict Evans tweets saying, you know, this is what you want to look at when you value companies to figure out if you deserve to pay them these crazy multiples. Well, and and you're right. And you kind of and if you just put in the four point four billion dollars in 2017 into WeWork and then you read those tweets, <laughs> you know, and they got in early. So right. they've notice, got their notice money. Notice that some of these investors didn't re-up their investment in later rounds. Yeah, they're in. When the valuations got crazy. Right. Benchmark's in in 2012. Benchmark's got it. You know, Benchmark's doing just fine in WeWork. Right. But Even they, though they, they probably the economic... paid the multiple. They probably did definitely pay much higher multiples than if they were strictly following their investment guidelines. Right. But it still worked for them. Right. And But if I'm benchmark and I think the economics of this deal still makes sense and I think WeWork is still, you know, the, the valuation makes sense, I follow on that investment and I, I double down on my wins. If I don't because the late stage valuations get kind of crazy and a little too rich for me, then I don't, which is what happened. So I think, I think benchmark, as you're saying, probably did okay on this. Yeah. Uh, I think they would have liked to done better if the valuation hadn't blown up the way it did. And I think the people that uh, are left kind of holding their hat are some of the uh, other folks at the top of that list that you showed. They're definitely not happy to read these guys' tweets today. 
And then, and then look at the value of the 4 billion, 5 billion, whatever, you know, some right. of this more, um, basically all <laughs> in about probably $10 billion <laughs> into WeWork and then look at what that's worth on paper today. So, um, few interesting dynamics going on. I'm sure some not so very happy emails going on behind the scenes as well. I think, I think the implications for this in terms of how it plays out will be, does this affect basically how investing, investing in VC market, uh, take shape over the next few years? You know, does these implications of right, we've had this kind of cycle of all these big companies, hugely successful in some cases going public. Uh, now we've seen how the public market is valuing these and we have some basically positive proof of what the economics look like. Does that change then some of the early stage investments or particularly the mid stage, which has gotten very fat in terms of the money flowing into it, the mid to late stage investments that can change over the next few years? I think it might. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point. Certainly for the, I mean, look, the, the non-platform companies clearly are having a much tougher time. Uber and Lyft are having a tough time. I think they'll be fine. I just think the the markets are having a tough time grappling with the losses that they're posting even though they have strong growth and I think they're, uh, they, you know, the, 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 the defensibility, the network effects, the dynamics there, um, you know, are legitimate. And I think we'll, we'll let that business get to, uh, certainly a break even and a point of profitability, but yeah, interesting insights. Well, that's it for us today on winner take all. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you tomorrow.